Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. BLACH.com. Block Construction. Together building greatness. Artist Works. Bluegrass players can learn from internationally recognized artists Tony Trishka, Mike Marshall, and Brian Sutton, and more at artistworks.com slash bluegrass. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. On today's California Report magazine, we head to El Salvador to meet a man deported there from California where he'd lived since he was a kid. Now he's adjusting to life in a violent country he hardly knows. I was young and stupid. I regret it. Every day I had the American dream and I lost it. Plus, we discover Chinese-American history in a gold country town in Amador County and a dream date for your California Valentine and why it might involve someone hovering very close to you and your sweetheart. It's like you're being rocked like a babe in arms. Someone's singing, and it makes people feel held and safe and perhaps more vulnerable. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Okay, so every year around Valentine's Day, all those chocolate hearts and sappy love songs, that pressure to buy cards and roses can make it feel exceedingly lonely if you're single. If you're a single senior citizen, you might feel that isolation and loneliness a lot of the time. Even if you're not necessarily looking for romance, you might just want someone to spend time with or even to dance with. We're kicking off our show today by meeting a crew of retired single women near downtown L.A. who head out together for an early night on the town. So early that it's lunchtime for most of us. They have daytime dance parties at senior centers where live bands play Latin music. Ruxandra Guidi has been reporting on aging in Los Angeles for KCRW. She tells us for these ladies, getting out of the house means getting on the dance floor. Blanca Acosta is a vision in violet. She's dressed impeccably, with the color of her shiny earrings matching her blouse, her pants, and shoes. She sits patiently inside a senior center, waiting for the band to start playing. Sometimes I laugh. You know why? Because I tell my girlfriends, now I go dancing, but during the day. <laughs> and, she says, she has just as much fun now. 
Nine years ago, when she was 56, she got laid off from her longtime job at a clothing manufacturing company. She got a good severance package and decided not to look for another job. But she hadn't given too much thought to what would come next. I never thought about it because I was still pretty young when I was laid off. So I never thought in the future I'm going to do this or that when I retire. I didn't think I was going to be as busy as I am now. Every day of the week I have something to do. Blanca lives alone. She's divorced. And her schedule now involves knitting clubs, lunches out with friends, bingo, and trips to places like Las Vegas, Zion National Park, and Cuba. The band is setting up in the senior center's rec room. The singer, Rebecca Flores, says they take requests. Well, lots of people want to hear candilejas, sabor a mi, como han pasado los años, a little cha-cha-cha, some oldies. Rebecca and her husband make the rounds, performing in mostly Latino senior centers. She's a senior herself. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I say, oh, I don't look the same. I have bags under my eyes, but I have to accept myself for who I am. Sometimes we seniors, we get depressed for any reason just because we're no longer young. But some days you wake up, like I did yesterday, saying, I still like myself. I'm still okay. Let's do this. I have to cheer myself up. Finally, the music starts. Blanca Acosta gets up from her seat and joins others on the dance floor, creating a big circle. Though she's popular with many of the men at the dances, her regular dance partner is her Cuban friend, Erga Cruz. She's 15 years older than Blanca. They stand next to each other, with Blanca doing most of the moves and Erga shaking her head to the beat. After one song, Erga sits down for a breather. You have to have fun and keep busy. You need to do other things besides thinking and worrying. That's Erga's motto in a nutshell. Don't worry, have fun. She's diabetic, and yet she's eating chocolate as we speak. After working for 38 years as a hospital janitor, Erga is enjoying her retirement, and that means dancing for as long as she can keep it up. A few days later, Erga swings by Blanca's house for coffee and pastries before they head out to their favorite dance spot in Lincoln Heights. They get to talking about some of the regulars there, the ladies who come to the senior center looking for husbands, the men who go to the dances to pick up women. Oh, my God, at least I don't go there looking for men. You know what one of the guys told me last week? That he was going to go to the dance with you next time. And I said, I doubt it. No way. He's a womanizer, a big womanizer. And there was also an older woman with a younger guy. And they danced so well. I said to someone, I bet she's paying him. And it turns out she was. She pays him $50 a dance. Ella le paga 50 dólares. At the Lincoln Heights Senior Center, Blanca and Erga's crew is already on the dance floor, 
other single ladies wearing high heels and colorful dresses. Up to 200 people show up here each week, many of them with canes and walkers. They dance for four solid hours to a live band playing cumbia, norteño music and bachata. Sometimes I think about older people who don't even have a desire to go out, no desire. Maybe they think they can't do it, but they don't even have to dance. The whole point is to go and listen to music. Nothing has stopped Blanca Acosta from coming to these weekly dances, not even an injury. Last year, she fell in front of her home and hurt her knees. But she still came and sat at the edge of the room. You could be thinking about something else, but at least you'll be listening to music with other people instead of being stuck at home. Blanca goes out dancing three times a week. She says there isn't a day when she'd rather stay home. For the California Report, I'm Ruxandra Guidi in Los Angeles. So those seniors we met, they weren't searching for romance. But what if you are looking for an over-the-top way to woo your valentine? How about hopping in a boat with a singing gondolier? That's what KQED's Chloe Feltman, an incurable romantic, did recently with her boyfriend. Not along the famous canals of Venice, but in murky Lake Merritt in downtown Oakland. She tells us why singing to lovebirds can be a mixed blessing for the guy doing the paddling. You're looking forward to this uh, romantic joyride on Lake Merritt, Jim? I am. I've been practicing my singing and my smooching. My boyfriend Jim and I stroll towards the boathouse on a beautiful Saturday afternoon and meet gondolier Zoltan Di Bartolo. You're going to want to step with your left foot first on the top stair and just walk down the center. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. As we push out onto the glassy water, Di Bartolo tells me he really loves his job. Just couldn't be more happy to be out here on a boat. Fresh air, it's exercise, and it's singing, which is all my body really wants to do. This former lounge singer fell in love with opera. He performs with companies around the Bay Area. He also has a special place in his heart for Lake Merritt. Even if paddling around the man-made lagoon in the centre of Oakland isn't quite the same as navigating the world-famous Italian canals. Do you think this Lake Merritt has the uh, romance and glamour of Venice? <laughs> Maybe with enough champagne. And as if on cue, my boyfriend pops a cork. <laughs> the singing gondolier lets rip with another of his favourite romantic arias. And we share a toast. Cheers, sweetheart. And a kiss. And why I like my job. 
You make the people want to kiss each I other. I make the people kiss. But sometimes Di Bartolo's customers are deaf to the tenor's sensual serenade, like the couple he ferried around recently who spent the whole ride glued to their cell phones. <laughs> they just had their faces buried. I sang them a few songs, and at one point they looked up and said, hey, nice singing. But pretty much, yeah. I ended up just starting to check my emails too. After we dock, I asked Di Bartolo why he thinks gondola rides are so romantic. It's like you're being rocked like a babe in arms, someone's singing, and it makes people feel held and safe and perhaps more vulnerable. His answer catches me off guard. As the sun sinks in a blur of purples and pinks behind the downtown skyline, I think about the fragility of the bond that lovers share. For the California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman in Oakland. Want to take a virtual ride with a singing gondolier? Check out our video at californiareport.org. We've also got more music coming up on the show. Stay tuned for a story named after an instrument you'd probably never hear in an opera. Usually on our show, we take you on a weekly road trip around California, a kind of audio journey to meet people and visit places unique to the Golden State. This week, we're going to head a little farther away, about 3,000 miles away, to a place that's very much tied to California, El Salvador. California is home to the largest population of Salvadorans in the U.S. It's an immigrant community that's in the spotlight now because of the Trump administration's recent decision to end temporary protected status for people who came from El Salvador, fleeing a devastating earthquake and widespread gang violence. Many Salvadorans who've been longtime residents of California have already been deported before Trump's decision. That's the case for a man named Juan Vicente. Reporter Levi Bridges traveled to El Salvador to see how he's adjusting to life after deportation. If you get deported to El Salvador, the first thing you see is the tarmac of the airport outside the capital. Juan Vicente left El Salvador when he was just 12. Now he's 49. Landing here, Juan was in complete shock. I'm looking out the window crying like, wow, I'm here, you know, got deported. Juan's a stocky guy with short, silvery hair and a bristly mustache. He lived in California for more than 30 years. His entire family is still there. My mom lives in Fontana, California, and um, my brother lives in San Francisco. My sister lives in Garden Grove. All my kids are out there in Bakersfield. Juan's been deported twice. The first time, he lost a green card for DUIs he got when he was younger. He returned to California immediately crossing the border illegally. Then Juan was deported again, 15 years later, after he was stopped for a traffic violation. Now, with two deportations, Juan says the punishment he'd face for returning just isn't worth it. Five years in prison, federal. I don't want to do that. Um, I'd rather go to Mexico. (laughs) Juan dreams of starting a new life in Tijuana, someplace where his family could visit. He has seven children in California all of them adults and U.S. citizens. 
Juan tried going to Tijuana last year, but Mexico is also cracking down on immigration, deporting thousands of Central Americans. And Juan was deported from Mexico, too. Today, Juan lives with a cousin next to a Seventh-day Adventist church in Santana, a bustling city tucked between dry, rolling foothills in western El Salvador. His only connection to California is a cell phone. Juan calls his mom each week with a calling card. Mom! ¿Cómo está, mom? (laughs) In her mobile home in Fontana, California, Juan's mom is busy making pupusas, flat disks of corn dough filled with cheese. I miss her. I want want to see my mom, but, you know, she's getting old. Los Angeles is where Juan came of age. He worked in the oil fields in Bakersfield and later at Trader Joe's. My home has always been the United States. And I was born here, but right here, it's not my home. It's never been. How Juan got to California in the first place is kind of complicated. Juan's mother migrated to California by herself in the 70s. And while she was saving up to bring her son over there, Juan spent his early years living with his grandparents in Santana. It's my old neighborhood. Beautiful place. But everything here changed in 1979 when civil war broke out in El Salvador between the government and leftist guerrillas. Those dead people right here, gunshots in the middle of the night, bombs going off. Juan says soldiers would storm into his grandparents' house to recruit him to fight, sometimes the army, sometimes guerrillas. His grandmother would hide him under corn sacks. Juan was only 10. Finally, Juan's mom came back to El Salvador and took him to California. She had married a U.S. citizen and got Juan U.S. residency. But Los Angeles wasn't always safe either. When Juan was a teenager, Central American gangs like MS-13 and 18th Street formed in Los Angeles. Juan says gang members even tried to recruit him, but he steered clear of them. Three fugitives are uh, on the run after 40-plus raids targeting high-ranking MS-13 gang members today across Los Angeles. As the U.S. began deporting large numbers of Central Americans in the 90s, those same gangs set up shop in El Salvador. And they make life really dangerous for people like Juan, who was never even part of a gang. After he was deported, Juan says five gang members encircled him to look for tattoos from rival gangs. One guy ripped off his shirt. Another guy told me to take my pants off. The only thing I had was my boxers. People was walking by. Even a cop was walked by. He didn't say nothing. This is the reality of life in El Salvador right now. Gangs that started in California affect everyone here. At a street stand in Santana, women mold round pupusas with their hands. Small businesses like these all over El Salvador have to pay gangs a cut of their profits. That makes it difficult and dangerous for people to start businesses in El Salvador after they get deported. The gangs kill people who don't pay up. Every day they kill somebody over here. There's so many ways Juan's trying to adjust to life here, even just going grocery shopping. At a supermarket in downtown Santana, Juan's looking for his favorite brand of orange juice. The state, there's only a dollar. Over here's a dollar seventy. The orange juice costs more here than it does in Los Angeles? Yeah, it does. Real expensive here. Everything. And money's tight. Everything. Juan can't get a job because he doesn't have a Salvadoran ID. The building that had a copy of his birth certificate was blown up in the war. He's been deported from California 
and deported from Mexico, and he's technically undocumented in El Salvador, too. Right here, I don't have nothing. I don't have nothing. No papers, no family. Back home in the evening, Juan calls his mom again. She's done making pupusas now. These conversations make Juan wish he'd done things differently, that he hadn't drunk so much when he was younger, that he hadn't gotten those DUIs and lost his green card. I was young and stupid. I regret it. Every day, I had the American dream, and I lost it. This is the reality that awaits thousands of deported Salvadorans, a new life in a dangerous country far away from California, the place many people, like Juan, consider their real home. Okay, gracias, ma. Love you, mom. Okay? Okay. Bye, mom. Love you. Bye. 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 For the California Report, I'm Levi Bridges in Santana, El Salvador. And now let's return to a series we're calling Us Too. Women across California responded to a survey we put out a few months ago and have been sharing their stories of abuse and sexual harassment in their own words. One of them is a woman named Cindy Patterson, who says she was sexually harassed 25 years ago, and it devastated her career. It also had immediate and lasting impacts on her health. KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg looks into what happens in the mind and body when someone like Cindy experiences sexual harassment. It was the mid-1980s, and Cindy Patterson was elated because she just landed her first real job in IT at a financial institution in the Southwest. I was one of the only women, and we were going to break that glass ceiling and all those kinds of things. She quickly rose through the ranks, but then about five years in, there was a change in leadership. Patterson says the new VP laid off many of the women. And he brought his home troops. And put them in charge. That's when it started. You know, the little comments like, oh, I see you've got some assets there, Cindy. Her male colleagues were often crude. And this one guy would just stare at my breasts. And it was just, you know, it's bullying. And what did it feel like when you would feel his eyes sort of sexualize you? It was as if my skin was being ripped off. To be honest, when Patterson said that, it sounded like kind of an extreme reaction. But when I relayed her story to David Spiegel, he's a psychiatrist at Stanford University, he wasn't surprised. From that moment, she's beginning to think that she's not just uncomfortable, but potentially in danger. He says the harassment likely set off her fight-or-flight response, which triggers a flood of stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, and the effects on the body are immediate. Increase in heart rate, blood pressure, muscle tension, raising glucose in the blood. The thing is, Patterson, like many sexual harassment victims, started living in a chronic state of high alert, and that disrupted her nervous system. First it was the headaches, the migraines, the stomach aches. And the situation at work escalated when the men started holding business meetings at topless bars. And I had the choice of showing up or getting written up. Some nights when she was invited to drinks with male executives, she'd feel hands creeping under her dress. First it was just like the knee, and then all was woo! And it wasn't just over cocktails. It happened in meetings at work, at work. If they wanted to shut me up, they would touch me under the table. And it did shut me up. It would throw me off my game. This is what psychiatrist David Spiegel calls speechless terror. 
the emotional part of the brain is hijacking the rest of the brain for a while because you're having such a strong reaction. The analytical part of the brain goes dark while the emotional part of the brain leaps into overdrive. Patterson made a plea to human resources, but she says they shrugged her off. This is called institutional betrayal because the very place that's supposed to help you doesn't. I'd get in the car and, wow, I'd just bawl all the way home. And when she did get home, she didn't get the support that she craved from her husband. And he actually didn't believe me. He's like, it could not be that bad. And they were trying to get pregnant at the time. But when she went to the doctor to find out why it wasn't happening, he told her she was under too much stress. And his advice was bleak. Go find a different job if you want to have a baby, you know, because we don't think your body can take it right now. That was a really harsh thing to hear. She started wishing she could just disappear. She put on weight and then more weight. She started dressing in somber black business suits and stopped talking altogether at meetings. Sense of self is just shattered at times. Spiegel says chronic stress can make people spiral downhill really quickly. It becomes this sort of non-reversing cycle of feeling worse about yourself, doing things that make you physically worse, and restrict your other options in life. Eventually, Patterson's marriage fell apart. Those two excruciating years also derailed her career. She stopped climbing the corporate ladder. She now works in the public sector. And nearly 25 years later, Patterson says she's still paying the price. I found out I have heart disease, and they think that a lot of it was the stress that I was under. All the recent media attention on sexual harassment is healing. Patterson hopes the glass ceiling, the one she planned to break in the 80s, may finally be shattered by the Me Too voices. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. place called... What? 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 Como? What? Getting directions to Fiddletown. For our series, A Place Called What? We've been asking you for your ideas about California places with unusual names. Elaine Zorbas sent us a note about Fiddletown in Amador County, a place she's called home for the last decade. Elaine's a former librarian who's written two books about Fiddletown. She says she fell in love with the town because of its rolling hills, vineyards, and rich history. has always had a lot of music, and fiddles were very common during the gold rush because this is a gold rush town, and it was quite a place in the 1850s. One old guy, in hearing people fiddle, said, oh, let's call it Fiddletown. Now, what we don't know is whether they were playing the fiddle or whether they were fiddling around. One of the things that distinguishes the town, and it's only about two blocks, the main street, you could take a deep breath, and by the time you let it out, you'd be through the town. (laughs) But it has many buildings that are left from the 1850s and some from the 1860s. And in the 1880s, half the population of the town was Chinese. 
One of the things that Fiddletown has that makes it particularly unique is it has a Chinese museum called the Chuki Store. And this store was inhabited by Chinese residents of the town from a herb doctor who came from China to a grocer and gambler. And finally, the last resident uh, was named Jimmy Chow. He died in 1965, and he was the last Chinese to live in Fiddletown. So the town has these buildings that evoke an earlier time. Nadine Sabai produced that interview with Elaine Zorbus from Fiddletown. Keep sending us your ideas for California places with unusual names. You can drop us a note at calreport at kqed.org. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Ryan Levy. The technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Howard Gelman and Katie McMurrin. The California Report's editorial team includes Victoria Maulione, Susie Racho, David Marks, Tyke Hendricks, Kat Snow, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Personal Capital, offering online financial tools to manage and track accounts, from investments to retirement planning. Personal Capital, serving over one million people at personalcapital.com. And the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randal Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.